When I was a freshman in college, this is fall of 2011, I arrived on campus at Lipscomb University here in town. And later that year, in the second semester, I was participating in one of the few well-known traditions on campus at Lipscomb. Uh, in the middle of campus, there's a big bison statue. That's our, our mascot at Lipscomb. And there must be 2,500 coats of paint on that bison. Because at various times throughout the year, people will, will paint the bison and put different messages on it and, and put different, you know, promote different things on it. And in the spring of 2012, I was painting it in celebration of my favorite team winning the national championship. Uh, it was one of those years where from the beginning of the year, you just saw the roster and you thought this team has a really good chance of winning the championship. And throughout the whole year, they were the best team. They got to the postseason. They, they left no doubt. My roommate and I, he happened to be from the same hometown. So we watched the game together in our dorm room. We had to lock our door because so many friends in our hall were messing with us and trying to break into our room and act like they were cheering for the other team. But when we won, when the game was over, we went and rounded up some other friends and we painted the bison to celebrate. Of course, the next morning, I went to my nearest uh, sporting goods store to buy a commemorative national championship t-shirt, which I wore as frequently as I could without it getting too stinky. You know how college guys in laundry are. Uh, but eventually, after a week or two weeks, this like fulfilling, gratifying thing that I thought for some odd reason was going to like change my life just started to wear off. Because of course, basketball season gives way to summer, which gives way to football season. And by the time next year rolls around, almost nobody remembers who won except you. And then you're just the defending champions and, and you're probably not going to defend. And so in a short order, nobody cares and it hasn't changed your life at all. Living in light of victory when it comes to sports is really not very meaningful. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we have the same experience. Through Christ, we have this victory over Satan and over sin and over death, over all our great enemies, but we don't really know how it changes our lives. Like, okay, so great, Jesus you know, conquered Satan, conquered sin, conquered death. I'm gonna like, go to heaven when I die, I guess, but what do I do between now and then? I think Esther 8 and 9 helps us answer that question. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he's, he's telling a story to the Corinthian believers about the Old Testament, and he says, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our benefit, for our instruction. That's true of the entire Old Testament. Paul was saying what others more poetically have said, that the Old Testament is Christ-concealed, and the New Testament is Christ revealed. And once we've seen Christ revealed, we can go back to the Old Testament and see how he's on every page. Indeed, we've said in Esther, Esther is the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God by name. And yet we've seen that Christ and the gospel are there on every single page. And so this morning, after last week, Austin's sermon showed us the victory of Esther and Mordecai over Haman, of God's people over their great enemy, and of Christ over Satan and sin and death. But this morning, Esther 8 and 9 is going to help us answer, uh, so what? Like, how do we live in light of that victory? This is the last week in Esther that we have to read a really, really long section of Scripture. But I should say, just to correct our impulses, we get to read a really long section of Scripture. So chapter 8, verse 1, I'm going to read almost through the end of chapter 9, and listen, I've heard Austin read uh, stories to children. I heard him read one this morning, and I heard that he was, he was just so captivating and engaging reading two chapters last week. I'm sorry that I can't do that as well as Austin, but uh, I hope you'll hang with me anyway. Esther 8, beginning in verse 1. 
That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. And the king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She said, if it pleases the king and I've found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I've given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. On the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. And the king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on the royal horses at the king's urgent command, and the law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence, clothed in royal blue and white, with great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province, in every city where the king's command and edict reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because of fear of the Jews had overcome them. Chapter 9. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vizatha. They killed these ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. 
However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you, and whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law, and may the bodies of Haman's 10 sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done. So a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. And this explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far, he ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the poor, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews returned on his own head and that he should be hanged with, the sons of the, with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim from the word poor. This is the many words of the Lord for us this morning. So the very same day as Haman's execution, Mordecai and Esther are elevated to fill his position. The reversal that Austin talked about last week is complete. The enemy of God's people has been dethroned, and God's appointed leader has been placed in his place on the throne. And of course, as we've said each week, the way this points to the gospel, a much grander reversal has taken place in human history. Satan the devil, the enemy of God's people. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. In the Gospels, Jesus comes onto the scene and he's casting demons out of people. And he's accused at one point by his theological enemies. They say the only reason he's able to cast out, de out demons is because he's actually in league with the demons. Like he's in league with Satan, their boss. And so they submit to him and he says, no, no, no. And he tells them this little parable. He says, if you want to plunder a strong man's house, you can't just walk in and start taking stuff. You first have to bind the strong man, and then you can plunder his house. Jesus is saying, I am not on Satan's team. I have bound Satan. I'm plundering his house. I'm freeing those who were taken captive by him. We've said before that Satan's only effective weapon against us is the record of our sin. That he can point to in front of God and say, this person is guilty and deserving of judgment. But once Jesus died on the cross, he took away 
the record of our sin. He rose from the grave victorious over Satan so that Satan cannot ultimately or fully or finally harm God's people. The prince of the power of the air has been dethroned and the prince of peace now reigns. Now you can probably imagine in your memory video footage that you've seen of when a a horrible uh, dictator has been dethroned and there's hopes that the new ruler who's come up in his place will be a good and just leader and you can see the footage right of people flooding the streets and celebrating and singing and chanting for joy about this regime change. This is the picture that we get in Esther. The reign of God's appointed person doesn't just bring good news to that person, but to everybody. Uh, Go go back to chapter 8 in the text. Mordecai and, and Esther issue this edict. We'll come back to that. But after they do, the text tells us that Mordecai leaves the king's presence and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. This is a mirror opposite of what happens in chapter 3. You go back to chapter 3, and the first edict is issued by Haman, and he doesn't leave the king's presence. The text tells us he sits down with the king to drink and get drunk. And it says the city did not rejoice and celebrate, but the entire city erupted in chaos and confusion. After Haman's decree, the Jewish people lamented, but now, verse 17, there's gladness and joy. Haman, we saw earlier, was hated and deplored by the people. You remember how the king had to issue a command for people to respect Haman? Which should have been, this is the second most powerful person in the world. It should have been unthinkable that anybody would not show him respect. But apparently, he was so hated that the king had to say, you have to bow down to Haman. But now Mordecai is loved. In, in the several months between the first part and the last part of what I just read, the text says that his fame spread across the empire. People loved him. So victory has come over the enemy of God's people. The reversal is complete. Many people are benefiting from it. But then what? How, as we asked to open the sermon, are the people to live in light of this victory? There's three things that I think we can learn from Esther 8 and 9 and form us how we should live in light of our victory in Christ. First, we kill sin. Now, so far, if you've been following along with us in Esther, you may have appreciated the story of the plucky underdog, uh, the Jewish people in oppression and in exile. But how do you feel about the underdog when they kill 75,000 people? Does that, how does that land on you? How do you feel when you read the words of Mordecai's edict and it says, avenge yourselves? Women and children take their possessions. It doesn't naturally land well on us as modern people. At this point, I think we're uncomfortable rooting for the underdog. But consider a few things. First, and and most importantly, in terms of the the literary aspect of this text, the edict in chapter 8 is written to mirror exactly the edict of Haman that was against the Jews in chapter 3. So as an exercise this week, I copied and pasted the the edicts from chapter 3 and chapter 8 and stacked them on top of each other and bolded and italicized all the words that were the exact same or almost the exact same. And over 80% of Haman's edict against the Jews in chapter 3 is repeated in chapter 8 for the Jews. So what's that saying? It's saying this is a dramatic rhetorical device to point out the fact that the exact opposite is now being done in favor of the Jews. To that point, uh, the most objectionable parts that are included in chapter 8 are present in chapter 3, namely uh, taking plunder and killing women and children. And the text actually, if we know where to look, the text makes clear that they didn't do any of those things. 
chapter 9, verses 10 and 15, say explicitly that they did not take any plunder. And when the numbers of people reported who, who died are, are reported, the text uses a gender-specific word, the Hebrew word ish, for men. They report the number of men who were killed. So the Jewish people, based on Haman's edict in chapter 3, were given the right to do these things, but they didn't do them. Why? Because they knew God's law, and they lived according to God's law. It's clear, then, that this is about what? This is about self-defense. This weird thing keeps repeating in the book of Esther that the laws of the kings cannot be revoked. So in other words, there's still permission for people who hate the Jews to assemble and try to attack them. And apparently more than 75,000 of them did. But this edict gives the Jews the right to stand and defend themselves. And should we begrudge them for that? If it still just doesn't settle well with you, if you just don't like the way that God handles his enemies here, um, which I empathize with, remember that in Scripture God says, vengeance is mine. And we may not, in some cases, always like the way that God brings vengeance, but ultimately, the way he brings full and final vengeance, we can't have any qualms with. Why? Because he brought it on himself. The ultimate place of God's vengeance is the cross, And the same God who demands punishment and payment for sin is the God who takes it in himself, in Christ. Now, why did this happen? Why did the Jews have to defend themselves and kill their enemies? Why? Because though their main enemy had been defeated, they still apparently had many, many enemies who were opposed to them. And likewise, in our lives, even though our great enemy has ultimately been defeated by Christ, we're still in a battle. Satan knows what is ahead of him. He knows his future. He knows that he is doomed. But what? He still tries to wreak as much havoc as he possibly can. And the main way that he does that against us is what? By tempting us to sin. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that Satan prowls around like a hungry lion looking for somebody to devour. But James 4 says that if we will resist him, he will flee. And there's no better picture of this, is there, in Scripture than when Jesus was tempted by Satan. In the beginning of the Gospels, right after his baptism and anointing for ministry, Jesus is, is thrown out into the desert by the Spirit. It, your, your translation probably says led out. That's a very euphemistic translation. Uh, it's the same word that's used when Jesus exercised demons from people. So the Spirit forcefully throws Jesus out into the wilderness in order that he can be tempted. So apparently this is essential to his ministry. And when he gets out there, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that time, Satan appears to him and tempts him. Now, when I heard this story uh, growing up, and, and really until recently, I always thought that it was the case that the 40 days of fasting was making a point that Jesus would have been at his absolute weakest by the time that Satan got to him. And of course, I think physically he was. And I think there's no doubt that Satan thought that he was getting Jesus at his weakest. But have you ever had a a time where you were like reading scripture or praying or a worship service where you just felt God was incredibly near to you? Like you just felt like the thickness of the presence of God. You felt like you heard exactly what you needed to hear for that day. And what happened? You leave from there and you feel like for the moment you could withstand any temptation that came against. Like for a couple hours, you were going to live completely for God. Now imagine if you had that experience over the course of 40 days of fasting and praying and meditating on God's word, Jesus may have been physically at his weakest when Satan came, but I think he was spiritually 
at his strongest. And so what does he do? Satan tempts him three times, and each time he rebuffs Satan with what? With scripture. So Jesus is our model for how to, to fight sin and fight temptation. What does he tell us to do? It's Sunday school answers. It's pray and fast and read your Bible. And I would add, like, be in community with God's people. Jesus was serious about that, and the question for us this morning is, are we serious about it? Like, I get that there's more popular and enjoyable things to talk about, but, but are we serious about killing sin? Romans 8, verse 13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Stott, the great British evangelical scholar of the last century, said of this verse, There is a kind of life that leads to death and a kind of death that leads to life. It's a kind of life, the life of the flesh, that inevitably, because it is, it is opposed to God who is himself the source of life, it leads naturally to death. But there's a kind of death, putting to death the old self, that leads to new life. And we should add, there's no neutral. There's no in-between. Like, you, you, don't, you don't just get to live right down the middle. As John Owen, the Puritan, famously said in his book, The Mortification of Sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Those are the two options in front of us. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying if you kill your sin, you will be saved. Paul is crystal clear, as, as Lauren just read to us from Ephesians 2, he's crystal clear that you are saved by grace and through faith and not from works. But he, along with the rest of the Bible, also make clear that good works, fighting sin, flow naturally out of salvation by grace through faith. They're both the evidence that that salvation is real and they're the way that we experience the life that Jesus died to give us. Yes, we are saved by grace, but grace is more than one thing. The grace of the Father forgives us of our sins. The grace of the Son cleanses us of our sins. The grace of the Spirit equips us and empowers us to overcome sin. And Paul is saying there's a, there's a kind of life that you were made for, what Jesus calls abundant life, the life of enjoying God and the joy and the love that infinitely flow from him, that if we don't take advantage of the Spirit's help to kill sin, we will never experience that kind of life. The essence of temptation, as we've said before, is Satan telling you, manipulating you, tricking you so that you will believe that the good life Fullness of life, abundance of life is on the other side of God and his commands. And if you can just push God out of the way, you will have access to the life that you've always wanted. And we know that the truth is that fullness of life is not on the other side of God. Fullness of life is in God. And it is our sin, our, our habits and patterns and lack of wisdom and lack of love for God that stand in the way of us enjoying that fullness of life first way that we live in light of Christ's victory is we fight sin. Second, we make disciples. There's this curious inclusion in chapter 8, verse 17. It says, many of the ethnic groups of the land profess themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews have overcome them. Now, there's a few different ways that scholars interpret this. One is like they start pretending to be Jews so that they won't, you know, be in trouble, which is funny to think about like 
how might they have done that? You know, like how would they have tried to adopt the the you know centuries of culture and and law that the Jews practice? So I don't think that's what's going on. It could be that they just sort of identified themselves with the cause of the Jews and said, "Look, we're we're on your side. We're for you." But it could also be that there's a genuine spiritual conversion that took place here. And I I actually think we have good reason to believe that. The language is similar to another story in the Bible. If you know the story of Rahab, the prostitute, in the book of Joshua, God's people are going into the land that he's promised them. They're winning all these battles against all these people who keep attacking them. And some spies go into the land, and Rahab, this woman, welcomes them. And then she says, look, we know about you guys, and we know about your God, and like, I can't speak for everybody, but like the fear of God has fallen on me, and I want to be on your side. Tell me what I can do to help. And they tell her what she can do to help, and then you read later, one, that she uh, and her family basically become like honorary Jews, but two, she's included in the Gospels in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So I think that Her case was certainly a genuine conversion. I think it's likely here that many people, because of everything that's happened, genuinely converted to the true God. And here, of course, it happened sort of passively, right? Like Mordecai comes to the throne and his fame spreads and people just get on board. But as Christians, we are called to actively make disciples of Jesus Christ. Mordecai ascends to the throne and his fame spreads. Jesus ascended to his heavenly throne 2,000 years ago. His fame has been spreading ever since, but before he left, he gave his church marching orders. What? Go and make disciples of every people group on the world, in the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. The church should be and should do lots of things. But if we aren't making disciples of Jesus Christ, what are we doing? Like, that's the essence of what we are called to do. Um, I'm sorry to use a second sports metaphor illustration in one sermon, but I'm going to. Uh, If you've ever been around a team, like, or fans of a team that just perennially stinks, like, for decades, they're just terrible and they don't do anything good ever, and then all of a sudden they get good. There's a phrase, right? People start jumping on the bandwagon. Now, my wife is from Cincinnati, And Cincinnati has two professional teams that perennially stink. The Bengals and the Reds are terrible, right? All of a sudden, the Bengals make it to the Super Bowl. And then the AFC Championship, they've got Joe Burrow. Like, they're one of the best teams in the league. The Reds now just had their longest winning streak in like 75 years, and they have the most exciting rookie in years in professional baseball. And this funny thing happens when teams that stink get good. Uh, Ticket prices start to go up and parking gets difficult, and people start cheering for the team and acting like fans who couldn't name more than two people on the roster, and you have some like die-hard fans who don't like that, and they think, if you weren't with us at the bottom, you're not allowed to be with us here, right? Stop making our parking difficult. We don't, there's no room on the bandwagon, right? Christians should never act like there's no room on the bandwagon. It is our mission as a church to implore people, to, to plead with people, to jump on the Jesus bandwagon. 2 Corinthians 5 calls this the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed this message to us. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors of Christ since God is making his appeal through us. Living in light of victory means both 
killing sin, and inviting other people into the victory of Christ, making disciples. The third thing it means for us is we celebrate. Now, if you have a personality like mine, I can be a bit of an Eeyore sometimes. Uh, Lindsay would tell you I was probably a bit of an Eeyore yesterday. Um, Sort of false, fake, happy Christianity where people are just smiling all the time really annoys me. I feel like it's fake. I feel like you're hiding something. Like, you can't just be this bubbly all the time. I, sometimes when I'm um, on long drives, I like to, because I never listen to the radio anymore, I like to just scan, like turn on scan and just see what happens. And I'm always struck by how many Christian radio stations there are in the South. I'm also, I know, I know most of you in the room, so I'm going to say this. I know we're in like the CCM capital of the world, but most of it, is not good, and it is so bubbly, and like, I get, like, those songs are good on occasion, but they're, like, Christians used to know about the minor key, like, everything doesn't have to be in a major key, right? That's not what I'm talking about. There's a place for that. There's a place for spontaneous celebration. We see that in the text, and do we experience that as Christians? Of course we do. When we come to faith, when somebody else comes to faith, when God shows up in a very real and clear way and answers prayer, do we spontaneously celebrate? And is there a time for those songs? Yes, of course there is. But we can't live that way all the time. Like We, we weren't wired to operate in that mode all the time. There's a, a sort of settled, formalized commemoration of celebration of what God has done for us in Christ. And in the text, we see that too. Initially, chapter 9, verse 22 says their, their sorrow was turned into rejoicing. That's spontaneous. But long-term, particular set-apart days every year for the commemoration of this holiday, Purim, which if you remember way back to the very first sermon in Esther, we said that the book of Esther is a sort of dramatized history of retelling the, the origin story of this holiday. In the Christian life, we sometimes experience spontaneous celebration, but more often than not, We use the ways that the Lord has given us to commemorate our celebration of the gospel. How do we do that? The most important ways that we do it are things that we do every single week when we come to church. Here are two of them. First, we sing. My favorite movie, and perhaps the favorite movie of some of you in here, is The Shawshank Redemption. There's this amazing scene in Shawshank where Andy Dufresne, the main character, has like, done some good stuff. He's gotten on the warden's good side, and he's gotten some responsibilities and some freedoms. And so one day, he's, he's cleaning the warden's office, and he stumbles upon his record collection. And, and he puts this record on. It's from the, the Marriage of Figaro by Mozart, I learned this week. And he's listening to it, and the officer on duty is in the bathroom. And he's like, you know, Dufresne, what's that noise? And Andy gets up, and you can see, like, the spark hits him, and he locks the officer into the bathroom, and he locks the door of the warden's office, and he goes back, and he not only turns the volume up, but he connects it to the loudspeaker throughout the entire prison. So every single prisoner, whether they're in their cell or at lunch or outside, hears this beautiful, glorious classical music playing over the grounds, and they're all standing at attention, listening to this music. And he's sitting in the office with his feet on the desk, and the warden comes, and he's, you know, banging the door down, yelling at him, and Andy kind of sits up. He says, you know, turn that music off. And Andy sits up and you think he's going to turn it off for a second. And what does he do? He, he grins and then he just turns the volume up. And you know he's going to get just destroyed for this. But he does it anyway. Why? Because it's worth the, the beauty of the song to pay the punishment that he's going to have to pay. And Red, the character played by Morgan Freeman, who narrates the whole thing, says, 
<laughs> he says, to this day, I have no idea what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are left best unsaid. He says, I would like to think that they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. And for the briefest moment, every last man in Shawshank felt free. That happens when we come to church. Like some beautiful bird, indeed, like a dove, indeed, you might say like the Holy Spirit flaps down into the drab cages of our lives and our weeks and our days and the walls dissolve away and for a moment as we sing these six songs on Sunday morning, we're free. It's a way that we celebrate the gospel. Another way that we celebrate the gospel is by taking communion at the Lord's Supper. The Bible teaches that when we receive communion, we're really participating and sharing in the body and the blood of Christ and of all others who are also in his body in the supper. We look back to the cross. See this picture of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And therefore, we approach the table reverently. We also look around. Um, I saw a viral video recently of, of somebody taking communion by himself in a public place. If you do it by yourself, it's not communion. It's called communion. It's a, it's a corporate, communal thing that we as the church take together. And we do so looking around, even, even going as far as to say that if you have unreconciled conflict, sinful conflict with another brother or sister in Christ, you should not come to the Lord's table until you've worked that out with them. Because we, we approach the table together. When we come to the table, we look inward and we look upward. We consider whether there's sin in our own lives that we need to repent of and, and, and confess to God and ask for forgiveness. We, we approach the table seriously because of that. But in the supper, we also look ahead. Because the Lord's Supper points to another supper, another feast, what the Bible calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. And when Jesus returns and makes all things new, we celebrate, all of us together with all the saints across time and space, at a meal. And Christ will be present with us. And the Lord's Supper is an appetizer to that meal. It's an, it's an actual, genuine, spiritual foretaste of the moment when everything will be made new and we will feast and celebrate. So yes, we come to the table reverently and together and seriously, but we also should approach it joyfully. The life of the Christian, life in light of our victory, our deliverance, is somber. Killing sin is a somber task. It's serious. Making disciples is something we should be serious about, but it's also, let us not forget, joyful and a celebration. 